I'm going to be reading from Psalm 131. I have calmed and quieted my soul. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Good morning to all. Stay in Psalm 131. You get to behold a wonder this morning. A proud man like me is going to teach you on humility. Does that fit? Start praying now. You know, reading this psalm another way, bring up Psalm 131 for me, if you would. And I trust you'll be in your scriptures, but some will flash up here too, if it's helpful to you. I have another more accurate way that I have to start reading this scripture, if God will allow. Oh Lord, my heart is lifted up. I have to drop that knot. My eyes are raised too high. Drop the knot again. I occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have, well, not. Now I have to supply the knot. But I have not calmed and quieted my soul so well. Like a weaned child with its mother, that's not. Not like a weaned child is my soul. Within me, O Israel, I need to hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Thank you, Mark, for leading us in a time of confession. Continue with me as we pray. Lord, we want to be able to make the declaration that uh, your servant David makes here, that our hearts are not so lifted up, eyes not raised too high, but we recognize that we tend to be lifted up of self. We tend to put our eyes on things not meant for us. We occupy ourselves with things beyond us, Lord. Not even fruitful, not productive. We confess this and ask you, Lord, to bring a correction this morning from your word. And we thank you for it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Charles Spurgeon is is bound to help us out here. Uh, Jeremiah, who I want to honor and just thank him publicly and before you as he's bringing us through the Psalms of Ascent. And he's giving us so much to consider for our lives as we consider the declarations of these psalms. But Charles Spurgeon, in fact, uh, some years ago, Lizzie and I were receiving from a Bible teacher who said, sell all that you have and buy Spurgeon. And he was referring to the, uh, the treasury of David. And I'm drawing from that this morning. Spurgeon here says the psalm that we've just read, Psalm 131, is a solitary colloquy. Well, he uses some of that great old English there. It's a conversation of David with God. It's not a discourse or a boast before men. Spurgeon says it's a short ladder if we count the words, but yet it rises to a great height, reaching from deep humility to fixed confidence. Well, this short ladder in my study and preparation, has been messing with my mind. Listen, it's counterintuitive to me on every level. So you get to enter into my wranglings with this 
passage this morning. Here's my question to you. How humble do you have to be to say you are humble and not be prideful? Now, did you catch that? How humble do you have to be to say you're humble? My eyes are not so lifted up. I'm not haughty and still not be prideful. Well, like Moses, do you remember in Numbers, he wrote that he's the most humble man on earth. How did he do that? Here, it's like David is saying, Lord, I'm so proud of my humility that I bring before you. How does that work? Through the study of this passage, I've made this discovery. It's not so much about being humble, like how humble I am, as it is about being broken. See, when you're broken, you know your pride, and then you're open to grace. I think that's the key. Watch for it. This is a counterintuitive declaration. See, I'm expecting the great King David, who's making this, to think on great things, like how about matters of state, of heaven, of his kingdom, of God himself. But that's not where he's going. Rather, he's declaring his humility before God, who is the great one, the great thing. We're back to Psalm 131, so you can see these words. See, David is both the speaker and the subject of the song. That's important for contextual understanding. We're going to go there. We're going to link to David here, who's making this declaration, and it's about him. I like to use the term lifting the lid. Maybe I came up with that. Maybe I got it from somebody. Lifting the lid on on the words of a passage. Just taking a peek at the original language, because it'll enhance understanding. Note that uh, the words that are God's words begins at a song of a sense of David. That's not just a title supplied by a Bible editor. That's the word of God. That's Hebrew right there, translated into English. Thank you, Wayne, for reading that to us this morning. So if we lift the lid on a few words, how about song, first of all? This is a song. Beautiful Hebrew word, shira. It's a, it's a name often used for a girl, naming your baby girl shira, a song in, in Israel today. And it, it means music, literally, or a song. It's there's reminds us there's ancient music to this that we're reading right now. Don't you wish we, we knew the tune, we could sing it? But many have put this and other psalms to music. And sometimes we are singing those words in our songs, no doubt. There are several versions you'll find on YouTube if you want to say, hey, let, let me go sing this passage later on. And you can find uh, some wonderful artists singing these words. It's a psalm of ascent, a song of ascent. Ascent is a ma'alah. There's some Hebrew for you. In there is tucked something very important. The word Allah or aliyah, as as it's rendered, is a journey to a higher place. See, there's aliyah going on today as, as people return to and ascend to Jerusalem like the tribes of old. And that's what these psalms are recounting is the tribes collecting up and going up to Jerusalem. And there's the word up to ascend, aliyah, the psalms then of ascent. Lizzie and I have had the privilege of ascending the final steps of this journey, literally at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The steps ascend. They're very interesting steps. They're not even. Some are this wide and some are that wide. Any idea why you would have all these unevenness of the steps? It's meant to remind, this was in the time of Jesus. Jesus walked up these steps with the tribes of Israel, collecting up 
to the temple of, to worship the one and true living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The steps are uneven to remind you, don't, don't rush. Go deliberately. You can't run up these steps at an even pace. As much as you want to get up there, you take your time. And these psalms are being sung and recited at each landing and each level, even as you ascend to the presence of the Lord. That's the imagery going on here. Ironically, today, you hit a wall. You see, Islam has, has intervened in the time since Jesus said, in fact, that temple would be completely destroyed, and it was. And now the Al-Aqsa Mosque stands as a formidable barrier right at the top of those stairs. It stands in haughtiness. It stands in arrogance against the worshiper of the one true and living God. What about that word, lifted up? It sometimes translated haughty. We don't use that word so much, but it means to exalt yourself. From Psalm 138, for though the Lord is high, and he's very high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. I don't blame him if he wants to keep some distance from this man's haughtiness. I understand that. And yet, he draws a sneer. Romans 12, Paul reminds us, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. The word raised is here. I've raised my eyes. It's meaning lofty. It's presumptuous. It's definitely an expression of pride, which he's saying, I don't do this. Spurgeon again. What the heart desires, the eyes look for. Do you catch that? There's a connection. What your heart is actually desiring, your eyes are looking for. This holy man felt that he did not seek after elevated places referring to David here, where he might gratify his self-esteem, neither did he look down upon others as being his inferiors. Psalm 101, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, God says, I will not endure. So how do you give a haughty look, I'm wondering? Have you ever given a, a haughty look? Turn to your neighbor right now and just try this out. What, give a haughty look to somebody who maybe wouldn't mind if you... How do you do it? Let me see those eyes working. Uh, you know, with a mask on, I don't know if we can express it as well, a haughty look. It might be masking some of the, the facial expression here. Well, we know this. God has a problem with the haughty look, so be careful. There's an awful lot that comes through the eyes. It's amazing. We don't, we're very unconscious of it, isn't it? But we communicate the heart through the lamp of the eye. It's, it's not a very pretty picture, is it? Back to our Psalm 131. The word occupy is here. David says, I don't occupy myself. That's what you concern yourself with. The word actually speaks of your walk. You know how we use that kind of euphemistically, my walk with the Lord? It's, it's, it's a literal thing. How you walk with the Lord is what you occupy yourself with. And he says, I don't occupy myself with the wrong things. In Jeremiah 45, we read, do you seek great things for yourself? There's a question. Do you? It's okay to think of big things, isn't it? But do you seek great things for yourself? Well, Jeremiah the prophet says, seek them not for yourself was the key there, wasn't it? Too great. That word actually carries the idea of loud, being too loud, noisy, like, like interference, noise, things too marvelous, profound, difficult. Job said, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. We've just gone through verse 1, lifting the lid on some of it. Look at verse 2 with me. 
It refers to a child here, doesn't it? David says that he's calmed and quieted his soul like a weaned child with its mother. It's interesting, the word child is not actually in the text. It's not in the Hebrew. It's the word weaned. And weaned speaks of a child. So that's there to help us understand. It could just say, I'm, I've weaned. It's like, what? No, I'm like a weaned child. There's a beautiful picture there. There's a challenging picture there. Weaned means to be benefited, to be dealt bountifully. I have received much if I'm a weaned child. Jesus said these words about it in Matthew 18, 3 to 4. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if you really believe that. I mean, Jesus said it. He's holding a child. Jesus, our Lord, the one whose advent we are now celebrating, came and taught, and he said the child is that important. We honor the ones down the hall right now, demonstrating that. Honor every parent here, every grandparent. The children are critical to the understanding of the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God can be entered by a trusting, humble child, and in fact, only by one who is like a child, according to Jesus. What does a weaned child look like? All right, I get a little over-analytical here. Um, I saw a poetic meaning and a more technical meaning. The poetic is that picture of a babe just nursed. We're not talking about a weaned child like one who's done nursing, but is there any more serene and and gentle and lowly and secure picture than the child just nursed, satisfied and now sleeping and resting in the arms of his or her mother? Maybe that's the poetic view of weaned, but more likely we're in the more technical side of weaned, meaning done with all that. You're actually done with all of that security and dependence, and now you're on your own. But who are you dependent on is the question. You're not dependent on mom, and it makes me think of the toddler now. Now we get into the one who's on the move, who needs correction, who needs training. Like a toddler acting toward its parent. Naturally unruly as he, she learns good behavior, some quicker than others, we'll admit, becoming independent and dependent still all at the same time. The parent needs to calm and quiet their child sometimes, maybe often. And that's similar with the unruly soul. I think you can picture the soul, that seed of emotions and of our will. It needs to be calmed, quieted, corrected. It needs instruction. That's the nature of the soul. Here, he has said in effect, Be quiet, soul. David, speaking to his soul. Be quiet. Rest like a child fully satisfied in the Lord and not dependent anymore on the things of the world. Weaned from self. Dependent now on God alone. Let us draw from a Puritan leader named Isaac Ambrose. Those Puritans had a way with words. He said... The first step to humility is to see one's pride. The first step to self-denial is to be convinced. Oh, what a self-advancing heart I have. If at any time 
self breaks out, if any time the soul begins to be advanced, let us fall down before, the, before God and humble ourselves for the pride of our own hearts. I love that language, if at any time my self breaks out. I'm thinking of how regularly myself is just breaking free, breaking out. But the calmed and quieted soul, like the toddler now that's weaned from its mother but is still dependent and needs mom and dad, but is trying to exert independence, needs correction, needs adjustment, needs training, needs lots of love. That needs to be calmed and quieted so he can learn to follow God, ultimately. That's what parenting is trying to do in the Lord. Now, David knew how to speak to his soul, to subdue it, to the point that he became what I call, at least, the David standard. When you read of the kings following David, do you remember what's said over and over about them? They're always compared to King David. It'll be words like, he walked in all the ways of David. How often was that said? I just read this morning, because I'm tracking through the kings, uh, uh, Josiah came along, a child king, and he walked in the ways of his father David. Wow, what a relief it is after you're reading of so many kings where it says he didn't walk in the way. So here's this man, David. We've got to consider him. How could it be that kind of a standard for the other kings to be measured by? Because at the same time, wasn't he a man of passion? He listened to his soul sometimes. His self broke out sometimes. How about lusting after Bathsheba? Killing the loyal Uriah. How about just him parenting the rebellious Absalom? There had to be some, some, some drama there for that to have a son who rose up against him and took the kingdom. So he was a man of passions, but to his credit, consider David. Evidence of controlling the soul like a weaned child. He didn't presume to wear the king's armor. Remember that? When he went out and up against Goliath, it wasn't for him to gain something. It wasn't even as much so much for Israel to win this battle. It was for the Lord. He did it for the name of God that had to be upheld in the face of this threat of the uncircumcised Philistines. That's David controlling his soul. He did not usurp the power of the king even when he could. He didn't join the plots against Saul. He didn't press into things that were unrevealed, by the way. He walked in revelation of God. He didn't snake his way into the priesthood, which was something Saul also did. Do you remember him overstepping his kingly bounds and going into priesthoodness? David didn't. He knew his sphere and he kept to it. And you know, he defended Israel. O Israel, hope in the Lord. He defended his nation and people, but he did not presume to conquer beyond and take other peoples and lands. You see, I believe David discovered brokenness in sin. He knew he was a sinful man. He knew his pride, but he had been broken. You know, he came into repentance over the sins of his passion. Repentance, And so down the line, God could say, like my servant David, like your father David, yes or no? How do you measure up? This enabled him to know his pride, this brokenness, you see. Remember the point I was trying to make from the beginning, and this may be the theme through the message. How can you say before God, 
I'm not this prideful. Only if you're broken enough to know your pride. That's what I suggest. And then you're in continual confession. Mark led us in confession. This isn't just so we do it and we're over. No, no, this is meant to be continual confession. Repentance comes with it. And then hope, hope in the grace of God that has yet, that is yet to come in the Advent. In David's time, David is looking somehow forward and he's, he's realizing hope in the Lord because full grace, full measure of grace is coming in the one who's actually been promised to be his descendant, the son of David. Maybe that's a big part of the David standard by which kings are measured. Let's let Spurgeon comment again. Good old Charles Haddon. It is a grand thing for a man to know his heart, his own heart, so as to be able to speak before the Lord about it. When he says he's not haughty, He is neither proud of his opinion of himself, contemptuous to others, nor self-righteous before the Lord, neither boastful of the past, proud of the present, nor ambitious for the future. In this vein, I've discovered something of what it means for a prideful man, me, to walk humbly before God. You realize how uncomfortable this is for me. Put yourself in my shoes. You know, you gotta you gotta talk about your own humility when you're a proud man, prideful. All right, but can it be done? David's modeling it here in Psalm 131. I'm not ready to say with confidence though, oh Lord, my heart is not haughty. My eyes are not raised too high. But thanks to a measure of brokenness in this person's life, I can say this, and you can too, I trust. Oh Lord, in fact, pray it with me. You can close your eyes if it helps you. Oh Lord, my heart is broken enough that my eyes see my own sin. That enables me now to say, first of all, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I need grace. I need Jesus. Teach me humility that I can walk with you in the way that pleases you. If you agree with that, you can say amen. If you don't agree, you can say, oh my. That's like real country preaching. I remember a country preacher we had long ago saying, say, oh, say oh, amen or oh my. Well, all right. I started down the path of making it a little bit about me. You know, this, this proud man saying, I know something about humility, thanks to brokenness. So let's go with that for a minute. Let's go with me just for a minute. Years ago, through some measure of brokenness, God showed me five key aspects of my soul needing continual repentance. I don't know that the number five is important. It's just that in a flash, I saw this. Did you see that? You have to be, you have to see, you have to be watching. Okay. I just saw these five fingers. And immediately God just supplied the understanding there's five things you need to keep in continual repentance. Now, I was very hopeful that in repenting of those, that day it would be over. I found out I had to do it the next day. And about 40 years later, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still repenting. But I think, see, that's part of the, I'm broken enough to see my sin and be in repentance, laying hold of the hope of the grace of God for forgiveness that's in Christ alone. See, uh, lusting flesh, pride of life, bad habits that dishonor him, lack of love and unbelief. Can you relate to any of those? 
Those have just been areas in my life that I keep in repentance before the Lord. Sometimes when I'm really like starting to get on some distant path from God and I feel it, I sense it, I, I remember, I haven't even been remembering to repent in some of these areas. So it's a helpful tool to me. But I needed an update on that. Years later, an increased burden for humility before God was something he brought me into. And I made a list, and I'm checking it twice. I went back and looked at it to count them up. There's 17. 17 means nothing either, by the way. But there were seven. Okay, if it wasn't five, good enough. These 17 areas are more like subsets. Let me give you some example. I'm hoping these are just helpful for you to relate to. How about fear of failure? Fear of failure. That, that comes in pretty handily un, under the, uh, the pride of life. You know, if I'm really proud about me, I'm afraid to be wrong, right? I have to be right, honestly. I really feel the need to be right. Parents, you ever feel that? You know, the kid is wrong. I'm right. I've got to be right. And yet you need to be in repentance before the Lord that I may not always be right. How about self-consciousness? Anybody self-conscious in here? Okay. It's good to be self-aware, but conscious of myself when I want to be and should be conscious of you. Even Christ conscious the most. Do you see? Defensive reactions. Reacting out of something that I realize is like a childhood wound of the heart. A bit of parental disapproval. And I react out of that when somebody else gives me a little bit of disapproval. And I need the correction, but I react defensively. Do you see? And here's a big one for me. And the last one while we're going down Bill's road of woes here. Searching for significance. I really do want to be somebody. I want to be significant. I want to change the world. These are the things they even teach you in high school, you know. And you sing, we've only just begun as you go out and walk the aisle in, in, in your graduation. It's, it's like, I actually don't need to be significant before God. He's very significant all by himself, and he can do with me what he wants. You see, promoting self comes out of that. Look at this uh, handy diagram that you should recognize if you've been in the, what's it called? Our gospel partnership, Cross Point Coast Gospel Partnership. So thank you again to Jeremiah and our elders and all who have crafted much to teach us the working of the gospel. Are you aware of this, what's happening? This is not a decrease. I wish it was. It's actually an increase. It's just widening. More awareness of sinfulness, but there's the brokenness. Do you see? More aware that I'm a sinner. There's a whole movement in the body of Christ that says we're not sinners anymore. Like once you get saved, you're not a sinner. That's an interesting one. That's a, that's a deception on the, and that's working within the body of Christ. No, we need to be more and more aware. Not that we wallow in this place, because we are also at the same time aware of his holiness. And that's the nature of the cross. Therein lies our hope, our salvation. We must repent here, receive the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we live all the more aware of his holiness. See, this gap is widening. The cross looms larger. The, the effective power of the gospel is more effective in our life, not less. Check yourself on it. I think it's a good diagram. Your life could be going the other direction if you're giving way to self and not to conviction of our sinfulness and his holiness. I can conclude this. The only way for David or me or you to tell the Lord 
And remember, this was a colloquy, a, a conversation between David and his Lord. The only way we can say we're not prideful, like he is saying here, is to be broken enough to see our sin and walk in continual repentance with hope in the grace of God, in Jesus Christ, in the power of the gospel to transform, to heal a sin-sick soul, to redirect our path that we would actually walk with him. I'm not really concluding yet. I just said that I conclude with this, that meaning that part. I conclude that brokenness is the key. David says he doesn't think on things too great for him. That's counterintuitive to me, as I said at the beginning. Come on, David. Great king. Great record, you know, other than your passions and yourself breaking out a few times. You're the standard for other kings. What are you not thinking on so much that's too great for you? And I thought about some things that I am tending to, and let me mention them briefly. Things that really are too great for me. What do I mean by too great? I can't actually do much anything about them. But I can occupy myself with them and feel like I'm important or something. I can feel like my opinion is so important. This is happening in our society more and more, like conspiracy theories. They're out there, and you can't do a thing about them. Not really, but you can sure get into them and think about them and talk to other people about them. Where is your hope found? Matt Hardy was exhorting us in a conversation just the other day. Your hope is found in the Lord, so you don't need the conspiracy theory to be solved, and then your hope is settled, is satisfied. You see, there's a chief conspirator out there. His name is the devil. And did you know that he's committed to the destruction of any sides of, of, of people, whether they're more this way or that? How about parenting outcomes? Parenting outcomes. Okay, you parent every day, almost every moment. But you can only influence, not determine the outcome. You see, the thing too great for you would be I can determine this child's outcome. You can't. There's a, there's a measure of brokenness for parents here, right here. You, you cannot determine their outcome, but you, you influence it, of course. You help shape it, but you're, it's a thing too great for you to try to determine that child's decisions of life. Something in my own career, and career is a big one. How about that? Careerists here. You think you can determine and control your career? No, no, there's some brokenness ahead, almost certainly for you. Uh, I went to the Leadership School of America. Do you know what that is? I'll give you a clue. They beat Navy yesterday, 15 to zero. Let me, where's the Army fans here? All right. I have had a thing too great for me ever since. See, you go to the Leadership School of America, you know you're going to go out in the Army and lead soldiers, and I did some of that. But you're supposed to lead everything anywhere all the time, you know. And there's so many greats that have risen to to, uh, prominence, of course, from the United States Military Academy. But I've carried this thing too great for me for a long time because I'm actually not that called and gifted and and placed to be such a, you know, a a big influential leader. It's It's not actually me. That was a false burden I took on, you see. Um... I start to compare myself. Who knows the name of our Secretary of State for a few more weeks? Mike Pompeo. He was there when I was there. We overlapped. He was a plebe, like the first year when I was a senior. You know, I was an exalted senior. He was a a lowly plebe. He's now the Secretary of State. 
And, he, and he's making diplomatic, diplomatic breakthroughs throughout the Middle East. You see, God had that for him. He has other things for me. I'm not trying to be humble here. I'm, I'm trying to show my pride of thinking I should be something. And guess what? Here's the deadly thing is comparison. Think about somebody you'd compare yourself to. And, and how, how edifying is that for you? How good? How, how, does, how does that go for you when you start comparing? Compare yourself to the Secretary of State or something like that. Uh, godly man, by the way, too. Um, so I honor him and all our, our leaders that we pray for. Pray for an incoming new crew. Pray for them. Bless them. Uh, write to your representatives and tell them how you want them to vote regarding things too great for you. We really can't determine and control matters of state, but we, we have a place to pray, to be informed, to write to our representatives. Okay, these are things we can do. But remember that comparison is deadly. It's a function of pride. It's not the result. It's, let me put it this way. It's dealt with by brokenness. So I stepped off the corporate ladder even in just the last couple of years. I wasn't exactly on the corporate ladder, but I was leading things at various levels in ministry realms. And uh, I was part of my struggle to be somebody, I realized. Uh, God had yet spoken to me very clearly from his word that I'm to make disciples. Think about that, friends. You can think about all the great things you might do or not. You might get caught up with yourself on this, but what about making disciples? I was so grateful to the Lord that he brought me back to that. He was pointing me towards being in discipling relationships in this next phase of my life. And I really do believe that could be the most fruitful uh, thing that, uh, that he could have me do. And um, I'm thankful for that. All of this, it turns out, requires humility. And you don't access humility without a measure of brokenness recognizing your sin and being in repentance of it continually with great hope because of the grace of God that you access. Do you see? Look at what uh, Edward Polehill, another Puritan leader, had to say to us. Humility is not only a grace, but a capacity to receive more of it. All other graces grow together with humility. Isn't that great? All other graces, all the graces we need... Altogether, call it grace. It all comes with humility enabling the access. And another Puritan, Ralph Venning. I thought Puritans were always named like Matthew or Edward. What, Ralph? I don't know. Are you sure he's a real Puritan? Ralph said, He that is little in his own eyes will not be troubled to be little in the eyes of others. Of others. And I don't know if it was Tim Keller who said it first, but I know Tim said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You follow that? It's not getting caught up in yourself and how lowly I am. No, it's less of you. It all comes back around to Jesus, doesn't it? So good, so good. I want to honor my dear wife who shared what has to now be one of her favorite books by Dane Ortland. Uh, gentle and lowly. Where do those words come from? Gentle and lowly. Do we have that slide? Dane said this. In all the Gospels, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. Okay, this is Jesus sharing something about him on the inside, his heart. 
And so it's very rare. You just, we just don't get that, except here. Perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered by human lips. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know, uh, back in those West Point cadet days, uh, I had some heavy burden on me. The, the training was so demanding and nonstop and constant pressure. And, of course, it's all negative. You know, you, know, you, you idiot. You know, it's like, talk about breaking. It's a total tearing down, right? Continuous, day and night. But the academic pressure on top of that was even worse. I mean, can you, can you imagine math and writing papers while you're being torn to shreds emotionally? So I was seriously heavy burdened. And in that environment, God let me know that I wasn't right with him. I, as far as I knew, I was, was raised and trained a Christian to some degree, and, and that was pretty good. I was a pretty good guy, really. I was doing good stuff. Wasn't getting in trouble. And then he let me know that I'm a sinner. He just let me know. That's called conviction. And he led me to the scriptures and others, of course, who inputted the gospel to my life. And right in that setting, I was able to receive this grace of God and, and be born of the Spirit and I opened up the Gospel of Matthew, and I hope I got something out of chapters 1 through 10. But all I remember is that when I got to 11, verses 28 to 30, right here, it was impact. I, I connected with the heavy burdened. Not only, you know, just all the, all the demands on me that I could barely handle, by the way. I wasn't that, you know, gifted and talented for all this. I was just burdened. I was heavy. It was, it was hard. Calculus was hard on top of everything else. I didn't, it wouldn't come easy to me. But then the sinfulness, like the recognizing that I'm, I'm, I'm far from God. I'm not right with God. And now I find the one who takes, uh, that I can take his yoke upon me, that I can learn from me. Because he said he's gentle and lowly in heart. Ortland also said this. The point in saying Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is gift, not transaction. That sounds like Jeremiah talking to me, doesn't it? It just sounds like something Jeremiah was. I think, I think Dane got it from Jeremiah. His, his rest is gift, not transaction. I can hear it. Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest outstrips even your own. And so, I'm sorry, Isaiah 57 is a beautiful passage. Consider these words. If you would, with me, don't just like say it's up there, I'm reading it, or Bill's reading it. It's the word of God. Receive his word. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That might be a description of, of what I'm hoping to convey, that you can be in that place, not wallowing there, but in great hope and expectation, but recognizing that without brokenness over our sin, we don't recognize it, we don't confess it, we don't access the grace of God. Our hope is in the Lord, and we have just covered verses 1 and 2, and there's only a verse 3 left, and it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Quick note for on, on Lizzie and I. If you've noticed the sign down the, down the, the, uh, the hallway here, it says Bridges for Peace because there's a whole other ministry down there. That's the ministry that I've worked with for many years. It's a calling to the literal Israel of today. And uh, that's why we've gotten to get there a number of times and why we're involved in the Jewish community. It involves caring for Israel. Spurgeon, bring up Spurgeon for me one last time. How lovingly a man who is weaned from self thinks of others, Spurgeon says. David thinks of his people and loses himself in his care for Israel. And this is the work that Lizzie and I have gotten to do in our family for over two decades now. I mean, in a literal sense. You can take it very broadly and more, you know, uh, eternally, of course. You can think of the church when, you, when we say Israel. It's just that there really is, you know, an Israel Jewish people. There's a state and there's people living there. And God has called us to that. That's been our mission field, okay? Uh, that's why I wanted to say thank you, Spurgeon, here, for pointing out that David, when he gets off himself, thinks of others. He thinks of his people and he loses himself in his care for Israel. And we get to have some reflection of that. That's really in an indirect connection is why we're sitting here. Uh, the, the, some, God led some Christians to relate to some Jews. That led to a relationship with this synagogue property that we're on. You see, So it's just part of what God is doing in this day. It's, it's very exciting how he's bringing the, uh, the regathered people of Israel, the the flesh and blood descendants of David, the family of Jesus uh, after the flesh, uh, back together. And he's calling the church into it. So I just want to say, consider that as, as David has done here. He's calling Israel to remember, to bless the Lord, to hope in the Lord. And let's go back to... Uh, we're there, Psalm 131, and we'll, we'll close now. Together we can say, O Israel, hope in the Lord. They need a reminder, just like we do. By the way, happy Hanukkah. Jesus celebrated it. It's in John 10, verse 22. He went up to Jerusalem. And it always says up, because it's aliyah. Remember, it's going up, it's ascending. It's the same idea. It's always been the ascent to the presence of the Lord. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Dedication, and that's what Hanukkah is. It's very interesting that Hanukkah is in the New Testament. It's, you don't find it in the Old Testament. It's an intertestamental uh, history that's not in the Old Testament, but it's picked up in the New. Very interesting. But just like David called his countrymen to hope in the Lord, weaned from the world and its ways, calming and quieting their souls. Listen now, weaned from reliance on self, 
looking for the Messiah, who would be gentle and lowly, and whom they would find, and in whom they would find rest for their souls. For how long? From this time forth, and say it with me, forevermore. We will pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your word that we've considered, Psalm 131. Lord, by your grace, by your grace alone, and by our recognition of our sinful state and your purchase of this sin through your blood, we say, Lord, our hearts are not so lifted up. Our eyes are not raised so high that, that we occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us. But Lord, by your grace, we have calmed and quieted our soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And we say, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. We pray it all thanking the Lord God. In Jesus' name, can you say amen with me? I thank you for listening.